0: I want to share with you guys today. I love football. I feel so much better getting it off my chest. Like, I I love football, and in fact, I I actually got up today, and I kind of looked at the schedule, and I kind of thought, um, there's a certain team that's not playing today. They have a bye, and I kind of thought, what am I supposed to do for the rest of my day, right? Like, I might actually have to talk to the people that live in the same dwelling as I do. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself. And, I, you know, I thought, you know, I, I need to make that confession that I love football. And then I thought I should probably apologize. If you, are, if you are at Restoration Church and you are not a Seahawks fan, like, I want to apologize to you. Because I give you guys s- some, some garbage about your teams. And so I want, to, I want to formally apologize and say, Restoration Church, we love all fans, whether you are a fan or maybe you're not even a football fan. Like, we'll pray for you, but, you know, you're all welcomed and accepted here. Um, Jesus loves you all. And if you're one of those fans and you like one of those other teams, uh, I should also—I'm t- I- not going to stop. I mean, <laughs> it'd be nice, but I'm not going to stop. I mean, uh, but I want to make sure you understand it's all in just and in fun. But I heard a football analogy that related football to the church, and I thought this was beautiful. And I thought this is something I, I wanted to say— They said the church is like a football game. And I was like, yeah, church is like a football game. And I'm like a pastor. So that means like, like I'm Russell Wilson, right? Or I'm, I'm, I'm Pete Kerr. Like, like that's awesome, you know? And Jake, Jake's like my offensive line and Jay Lee, we're leading worship. She's my receiver. And I'm like, this is fun. Like we can have some fun with this, you know? Uh, But they said the analogy was this, that the church is like a football game where you go to a football game There are 65,000 fans in the stand who probably should be, uh, who probably need the exercise. And they're watching 22 men on the field doing all the work who probably need a rest. And I thought, I like the other analogy better, thinking I'm Russell Wilson. I don't like the idea. But this idea is probably uh, something that we can see in the church world. In fact, there's this statistic, this this quote that says, uh, in the church world... 80% 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And that's probably a, a true statistic. In fact, there was, a, there was a pastor, Bill Hybels, who planted a church long ago. And Bill Hybels said, I'm going to plant this church, and it's not going to fit that norm. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to have 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And five years in, uh, a great successful church in Chicago, guess what he found? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I begin to process through and think, what would happen if some of those statistics were reversed? What would happen were if the church wasn't 65,000 fans standing in the, in, in the stands watching the, the work happening? What if, what if the people got engaged in ministry, got involved in, in the work of the ministry, and I began to think, man, what would that look like? How beautiful would that be? So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you need a Bible, I think we've got a couple in the back. If you just slip your hand up, we'll uh, bring one of those to you. We'll also have all the words on the screen behind me. So um, uh, as well as you, if you have a phone or an iPad, you're welcome to pull it up on there. And what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 3 is uh, we started this series of Nehemiah three weeks ago. And we saw that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. So he's kind of a high official in the king's court. Maybe he's like secretary of state or, you know, he's got a high uh, position in the king's inner circle. In a season of success, in a season of prosperity. And uh, Nehemiah, while he's in the spot, he hears this report. He hears this report of his kinsmen who are over 800 miles away, people he's never met. He just knows he has some sort of relationship with them. And he hears that those people are in shame. He hears that the walls of the city are torn, were torn down a couple hundred years ago, and they're still in shambles. They're still in, in rubble all over the place. And this is where Nehemiah hears this, and you think, well, why would he care about people 800 miles away? He's in a good season. He's got a great job. He's got wealth. He's got everything he could ask for. And we saw Nehemiah, he broke down. He dropped to his knees, overwhelmed with grief. He starts praying to God. And that's where God gave him a vision. God gave him a vision and said, this is what is, but Nehemiah, this is what should be. This is what could be. And God gave Nehemiah a vision to go and to rebuild those walls and to make that city right. And, and, and to make that city that's supposed to be the presence of God, that's supposed to be a blessing uh, from God to the rest of the world. He says, man, God gave him a vision to go and do something about it. And this is what I want to pray for all of us is that God would give all of us a vision. God help me understand what it is you want me to do here. Because I'll tell you, God doesn't just want us to to, to raise our family and to build our house and to, to have our good little life. God wants us to be involved in His mission. And my prayer is that God would give every one of us in here a, a vision, a, a purpose, a, a direction. Now we'd be able to say, this is exactly what God wants me to do with my life. But God gave that, Nehemiah, gave that vision to Nehemiah, go rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah prayed for four months for an opportunity. Nehemiah, he was faithful in what he could do, and he trusted God in what he couldn't do. So the king says, hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? And Nehemiah says, well, my, 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 my kinsmen, my, the country we come from, the city I'm from, it's in ruins. And the people are in shambles. And he asked the, the king, can I have permission to go back to the city and rebuild the walls? Can I have, can I have resources? Would you give me money and, so I can go and buy timber to rebuild these walls? And would you give me, would you give me uh, letters to say nobody can stop me and I can just go and, and do the work that God's called me to do? And that's exactly what happens. God changes the king's heart and says, go for it i 'm going to release you for thirteen years to go and rebuild these walls and do something beautiful for the people of god that 's where we take to Nehemiah chapter three. Nehemiah has landed in jerusalem he 's told the people what God has put on his heart and Nehemiah chapter three we see them with a huge task in front of them. This is a huge task to rebuild this wall this wall now I want us to understand this wall is is uh, I, I, between one and a half to two and a half miles long, okay. It is uh, it is three to four feet wide and upwards of sixteen feet tall. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you something. Last week I built a retaining wall that was four feet high. No, it was like three feet high and six feet wide, and it took me it took me a whole weekend. Okay. Can you imagine the big job of building this wall that is one and a half miles long? Sixteen feet high, three feet wide. This is not a little task. This is a huge task. It would have been overwhelming. And this is where we can look and say there's a leadership principle that we can learn from Nehemiah. Okay? Does anybody know how you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. And this is what Nehemiah does. He arrives and he says, hey, we've got this elephant. Let's break it down into these small tasks, these manageable things, and then we can begin to, to tackle this thing. Unfortunately, what happens is when we are given an impossible task or, or some, a project that we've got to do, maybe you students know what I'm talking about. Um, no names, but students, you know what I'm talking about. Where you're given an assignment, and, and, and instead of breaking that assignment down and looking at tasks, what do you do? Well, sometimes you underestimate the task. You think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We've got plenty of time. And then you get to where the deadline's tomorrow, and you're like, oh, man, I really should have started this earlier. Or you procrastinate. Any procrastinators in here? Yeah? That's where student, the night before the project's turned in, and you're up till 1 in the morning trying to finish it because you procrastinated. For me, when I'm having a project, something to do in front of me, Uh, Another thing sometimes that happens is you begin to say, well, I want to go do the fun stuff, the fun parts of the project. And you kind of miss some of the important stuff. And so you kind of pick and choose what you do. And that's me. I I like to do the fun things first and then realize, man, I've got to go back and kind of get some core things, some foundational issues done. Or lastly, sometimes you try and uh, do too many things at once. But this is where God gave Nehemiah some, some wisdom and said, you know what, if we're going to accomplish this great thing, we're going to have to break it down into manageable, bite-sized pieces. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see Nehemiah take this, this wall and break it down into bite-sized, manageable pieces. But it's not just about that. It's not just about eating an elephant. It's not just about how to, to handle big projects. We're going to see uh, something different today about how Nehemiah mobilizes the people of God to a common purpose, to accomplish a mission, to do something great for the glory of God. In fact, if you were to say, well, what's this message all about today? This message is about a group of people who are united under godly vision. Uh, And when a group of people are united under that godly vision, they become a tool that God uses to accomplish great things for him. And that's what we're going to see when we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, is that when there's a group of people who are unified under godly vision for a godly purpose, man, they become a powerful tool that God does tremendous things through. So Nehemiah chapter 3, if you've opened there, you're probably looking at Nehemiah chapter 3, and you're saying, it looks like a phone book from Jerusalem. I see a bunch of names, names I can't uh, pronounce, let alone even try and spell on my own. Like, man, like, are we really going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3? Yeah, we are. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so when we look at a a chapter like Nehemiah chapter three, one that if we're reading we might even skip, in fact there are several commentators who don't even mention chapter 3 at all because it's just a bunch of names. But we're going to take an opportunity today and try and understand the proper context. And we're going to read every one of these verses. Now, let me tell you, this is how I do it. Uh, you're going to say, well, well uh, how do you pronounce all of these names? Well, here's the secret I learned in, in school. I learned you read quickly, and you try and sound confidently, and nobody will know the difference. So some of you, some of you may be into your Greek and Hebrew, and you might want to correct me, but I'm going to read through... Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, you can follow along in your Bible, you can follow along behind me. I'm going to read every one of these names uh, and sound like I know what I'm talking about, Uh, and then we're going to have a conversation about it, all right? Nehemiah chapter 3. Okay, i got to get ready for this, man. All right. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors they consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of uh, Berechiah, son of uh, Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, Repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Verse 6 Joai the son of Pasea and Meshelam the son of Besodiah repaired the gates of Yeshana. Uh, they laid its beams instead of stores, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel the son of Harahiah, goldsmith repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of uh, Haramoth, uh, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabonah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of uh, Pahath-Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Hala, uh, Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Verse 13, Canaan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Balkijah, the son of Rechab, uh, ruler of the half-district of beth Hakaram, uh, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhozah, ruler of the district of uh, Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, uh, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethazur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. Let me take a breath. Verse 17. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kaliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Baviah, the son of Hanadad, ruler of the half-district of Kailah. Next to him, Israel, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the accent of the armory to the at the buttress. After them, or after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him Mermoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section, from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. And after them Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, uh, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parish, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east, and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of opal. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After him, Zadok, the son of Immer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemiah, the son of Jeconiah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, Uh, the sixth son of Zealoth, repaired another section. And after him, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and up to the uh, upper chamber of the corner. Verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Woo! We did it. That is five minutes of your life that you cannot get back. Nehemiah chapter 3, let me pray. God, just want to uh, thank you for the chance to be here today. And God, as we look at a chapter and uh, we see names that we can't pronounce, names that we don't recognize, uh, names that are even hard to spell, and God, I pray that you help us to give us insight today. Uh, God, your word is living. And God, every part of your word is meant to... to Teach us and draw us closer and deeper in love with you. But God, I pray that we don't check out today just hearing a bunch of names, but that, God, we would allow you to speak to us, to draw us deeper in love with you, to give us, to help us understand that vision for our own church. And, that God, if we want to see you do something beautiful in our city and in our midst, it's going to require all of us to learn from this chapter, to be unified under that common mission. So God, we love you, and we praise you, and we pray for your presence to rest on us now, Jesus, your holy and precious name, amen. So I figured I'd start and show you a little bit of a map, just so you understand. If you look at this map, you see the very top, the very top of it, uh, you'll see the sheep gate. And basically what happens is they're going to rebuild this wall, working counterclockwise, so they're going to go to the left, all the way down this left side, and down all the way bottom to the dung gate. Uh, Then they're going to work their way back up on the right side. And so as we're looking at that, that's basically what Nehemiah just did. He said, here's someone and they're going to take this top portion and then next to him and next to him and so on and and, and so forth. Again, this was a impossible task. This was a huge thing in front of them. But when there's a group of people who are unified under a common mission, then they become a powerful tool for God to do something beautiful through. And so I want to take this chapter and say well what are we supposed to take away from it well i don't want to necessarily be too concerned about names and, and who people were i want us to look at this chapter through the lens of the church the church right here our our church i want to look at this idea on, on how do we mobilize the church to, to do something big and beautiful for for god Again, if we're looking in St. Nehemiah chapter 3 is about a group of people who are unified under godly vision to become a tool for God to use in tremendous ways. Isn't that what we want for the church? That we would be a group of people unified under godly vision to accomplish something beautiful for him. Listen, that's no small task. Because when we look at our church, man, we planted four and a half years ago. And the the idea with Planning Restoration Church is that we would be a diverse community of faith. That regardless of your background, regardless uh, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your economic background, regardless of what part of the city you come from, that we would come together and unite under the one thing that unites us, Jesus Christ. That we all worship the one true same God— and we may come from different backgrounds, we may talk differently, we may have different family backgrounds, but listen, the one thing that unites us is we all come to Jesus by faith and accept the gift of his sacrifice on the cross for us. This is what unites us. We planted our church not just to make a dent in our city, but to make a difference. Like, this is, this is why we are here. And as, and as I've shared this the last couple of weeks, as, as we look at our church— Man, I'm excited. Like, our church is as healthy as it's been in, in, in four and a half years. There's momentum picking up. And, and you just feel like, man, we're on the cusp of something beautiful. Like, it's exciting. And I, and I hope you feel that. I hope it's not just me. But this is an exciting season for our church. And so that's where I feel Nehemiah chapter 3 is a perfect text for us today. On, 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 let's take some principles that Nehemiah uses to mobilize the people of God in Jerusalem to do something big and tremendous for God. And why don't we take those principles and apply them to us right here at Restoration Church in Yakima, Washington, that we would be a group of people unified under godly vision, become a powerful tool for God to use to change our city. So Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter 3, we're going to look and see some principles on mobilizing the church. The first thing that I want us to see is, is going uh, number one, is it's all about God. You see, sometimes we approach church and we think church is all about me. You know, I, I want a church that meets my needs. And we make church about me. Listen, the church is not about you. The church is all about God. In fact, as you look at uh, Nehemiah leading these people to rebuild the walls, I mean, you see this from the very beginning in verse 1. Verse 1, it says that Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They dedicated it, and they set its doors. The sheep gate was an important gate because that is the gate that they would bring the sheep in to be able to to worship God, to offer sacrifices to him. And so they build this gate first, and then when they get done building the gate, they, they consecrate it. They dedicate it. Now, what's going to happen is at the end of the wall, when the wall is all built, they're going to have this big dedication service and big time of consecration. But it makes you wonder if they're going to have this big celebration at the end, why do they stop right now? Why do they stop after the very first part of the wall is built? Why do they stop after this gate is built to say, hey, we're going to consecrate it, and we're going to have a dedication time? Because it was a reminder of what they're doing. It was a reminder of why they're doing it. Yes, yes, they're building walls. Yes, they're, they're building gates. Yes, they're doing these things. But it's not really about the walls. It's not really about Jerusalem. It's not about Nehemiah. It's not about any of these names listed. It's not about any of these things. It's all about God and his glory. It's about those people showing, hey, we trust you, God, and we follow you. Because we, can, I mean, God, he's the sovereign creator of the universe, right? Like, he created the heavens and the earth. Everything here he created. Certainly, he could build a wall on his own much better, much faster. He could, in a blink of an eye, it could be done. But again, the walls, the work is not about the walls. It's not about the work. The work is a way for the people to bring glory to God, to show, God, I'm following you. God, I trust you. God, I'm obedient to you. I'll do what you ask me to do. I mean, these these people rebuilding the walls, all these names that we read, like, them doing the work on the wall, that doesn't give them right standing with God. I mean, God's not impressed with their labor. God is not impressed with their righteousness. What well, God wants is their heart to be fully dedicated to him. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better... It, it, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. See, this is, this is so important for us to understand. We've got to grasp this. And we're not just talking about the walls. And when we talk about church, we're not just talking about going to church and serving and, and, and being, being involved in the church. Because it's not really about coming to church. It's not really about serving. It's about your heart. Is our heart fully dedicated to God? Or are we coming because, hey, I feel like I need to go in church because that's what I need to do for God to be happy with me? Am I serving in church because, well, I'm trying to make God forgive me because I did that one thing, and I really wish he'd give me some grace on that. So I'm going to go, and I'm going to serve so God gives me a sin chip so I can get past that. Right? Like, 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 what does that mean for us? And I ha- we wa- we've got to understand, God's not concerned about that. He wants your heart. He wants your heart fully dedicated to him. There are some people that come to church, and the reason they come to church is because, well, I did something really stupid this last week, and I'm going to go to church, and I and, and need to try and have God make me, forgive me, make me feel better. Listen, that's not the way that God works. You know how stupid that is? That'd be like men. Like men, you get married, and you decide, my role is to provide for my wife. My role is to go and, and, and get a job and, and make money to provide for my wife. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to make some money, but I'm never going to be home to actually be there with my family. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage my wife. I'm not going to meet her emotional needs. I'm not going to uh, get to know her deeper on that emotional level. I'm not going to truly speak to her heart. I'm just going to provide money for her because that's the man's job, right? Man, if you were to try that, how many of you think that would work? How many of you think that's a good idea? No, that's stupid. That's stupid. See, your wife wants your heart. She wants more than your money. She wants your heart. She wants to know that you care about her, that you prioritize her, that you would do anything for her. This is what God wants. He he wants hearts that are surrendered to him, that are trusting him, that are saying, man, I will follow you. So man, when your wife says, hey, let's go to Ikea, the the right response is, Okay, let me pack for camping for three days and I'll go with you. Sure thing. Listen, have you settled this in your heart? Are you tired of trying to feel like, man, I'm just not good enough for God? I, I keep trying to, to do right for Him. I keep trying to serve Him and follow Him, but I just don't feel like I can do enough. Do you want the peace? And the joy that the Christian life promises, but always seems like it's just beyond our reach. Listen, you need to understand that God's not primarily concerned with your works, with the good things and bad things you do. God wants your heart. That's what he wants. He wants your heart dedicated to him, submitted to him, will follow him. For he says, this is what I want you to do. And you say, okay, because I love you. Because it's all about you. It's not about me. Listen, if you haven't prayed and surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, your will, man, today's the day just to humble yourself before God, to say, God, man, I'm tired of trying to earn my approval from you. I'm tired of trying to live live that rat race. God, I'm just going to pray and just ask you to be my Savior. To say, God, I want to submit my life to you, surrender it to you, to follow you. Listen, there's freedom. There's freedom when we recognize it's all about God and our hearts being surrendered and following after him. First thing Nehemiah wants us to understand, to mobilize, is we've got to understand it's all about God. Now, when we talk about calling, when we call you to uh, be a part of the church, to serve and to give and to be a part of the mission of God right here, it's not so you are better in God's sight. It's not to show the, the world how great Restoration Church is. It's not to say you and I are better than somebody else because we do this for, for God. It's that we would be a part of the mission of God to bring glory to him. That's why we exist. Not to make a church great. Not to make a pastor great. Not to make you and I great. But to make God's glory great. And, and Nehemiah, uh, in the very beginning, the first part of the wall that's done, they stop to dedicate it to remind ourselves, listen, It's not about the work. It's not about me. It's not about the wall. It's about God and His glory. And that is what we are committed to. Second thing. Second thing, if we're going to walk in unity towards that mission, is we need to uh, walk in unity towards that mission. That's exactly what it is. I read that wrong. Number two, we're going to walk in unity towards that mission. As you read through this chapter, I counted. There are 38 different names that are listed. There are eight different groups of people, the men of Tekoa, the men of of this place and that place. Uh, There are all these different people listed in this this chapter, and they have a common goal. Their goal is to rebuild the wall, and there are 41 different sections of the wall, Uh, and these 38 names and these eight different groups of people are going to come together and work together to Accomplish that mission. Now, what's, in, what, what's interesting is, is that you look at these 38 names, there's incredible diversity amongst these people. There are, are folks who are working right across the street from where they live. And then there are folks from other parts of the region. There's folks from Tekoa who are coming into Jerusalem 10 miles away to come in and serve and be a part of what's happening right there to, 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 to give their time and their resources. In verse 12, you saw a dude named Shalom. And he turned the project into a family affair where he brings his daughters and his kids in and says, hey, we're going to serve together as a family. So you've got people from the city. You've got people from the suburbs. You've got families coming together. And then you've got all sorts of different types of dudes. Like like verse 9 talks about Raphael. He was a city official. You've got city councilmen, city mayors that are joining on the wall. Uh, Verse 31, you see Malchijah. He's one of the goldsmiths. So whatever a goldsmith does, that's what he does for a living. Now, he's committed to to jumping on the wall. Verse 8, Hananiah, he was one of the perfumers. So his wall probably smelled really good compared to everybody else's, right? He needs to be down by the dung gate to have that blowing up around. So here you've got people from all walks of life. You've got male and female. You've got rich and poor. And they're all coming together to work on this wall. In fact, as you read through, you see this term again and again and again. So-and-so worked next to someone else. And beside him worked so-and-so. Verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest, he worked on the sheep gate. And verse 2, next to him, the men of Jericho. Verse 3, the sons of Hassanah, built next to, verse 4, Merma. All throughout. You see this incredible diversity of people working side by side, working alongside one another, helping one another, rubbing shoulders with one another, despite their differences, despite the fact that they had different backgrounds, despite the fact that some of them lived in different parts of the city, different parts of the region. They came together, unified under a single purpose, to rebuild the wall and to serve and bring glory to God. You know how uncommon that is? For people from all sorts of walks to come together to be unified under a common purpose. Because what happens is typically we stick around people that look just like us. So if you're a biker, guess who you usually hang out with? Bikers. If you're a football fan, guess who usually you go watch football games with? Football fans. If you are into whatever it is, you typically, you associate with people that are like you. But this is something unique about, about the people of God, is we have something that unifies us that great, that's greater than all of that. That's the worship and glory of Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that I love most about Restoration Church, is that we were planted intentionally downtown with the vision that we would be a diverse body of faith. That people from all walks of life could come together through our common faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And as you look at Restoration Church, it is so beautiful for me to stand up front and be able to look at all of you. Not because you're all beautiful. Some of you are. Some of you have some work to do. But it is beautiful because I look at you and I see, man, we've got some rich people sitting right next to some poor people. We've got people from right here in downtown Yakima. We've got people from West Valley, from Sela, from Terrace Heights, that are all coming together to unite under this purpose of worshiping God. We've got white people. We've got brown, black, red, yellow, blue, all sorts of people coming together with a common unifying factor of faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, really, when you see that diversity in the body of Christ, Really, this points to to heaven. The Apostle John had a glimpse of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 7. And he wrote and said, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is a picture of heaven. The people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues would come together to worship Jesus together. And isn't that what our world needs right now? Politically, we're in this weird season of, of, in our country where everything's so divided. Everything's so divisive. Oh, it probably always is that way. Listen, isn't that why the church needs to say, listen, let's stop segregating ourselves by these outward things, by, by, by our, our color, by where we live. And what if we just came together and said, this is what unifies us, Jesus Christ. The fact that every one of us, I don't care what part of the city you come from, I don't care if you're rich or poor, we all come to Christ with the same we come to Christ with our sin. And he says, Listen, my son died for you. Place your faith in me and be forgiven. Every one of us, that's how we became a Christian. And that is what unifies us together as the body of Christ. Here at Restoration Church, listen, it doesn't matter what side of the tracks you are from. Listen, I invite you to belong at Restoration Church. Listen, it's not easy. Not easy. It'd be much easier if we planted a church where everybody looked the same, and everybody dressed the same, and everybody talked the same. Listen, that's not what God's called us to. He's called us as something greater. He's probably called us something to what the world needs to see today. The fact that all of us, from wherever we come, we can come together and be unified because of Jesus. And so that's what we do. We point to the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ to bring a diverse people like us together for a common mission a common purpose, to know Christ and make Christ known. Let me tell you, for this to work, it's going to require grace. It's going to require that we are quick to forgive. It's going to require that we are willing to set aside our preferences for the sake of others, for the sake of unity, for the sake of the mission. Listen, one of the things that we've been doing as a church that Jacob's been trying to do is the morning huddle, Sunday morning huddle. If you're serving, we invite you to show up at 10 o'clock. You know why we do the Sunday morning huddle? Because we want to be unified. And we recognize, man, there's people who are serving kids' ministry. those people who serve in worship. those people who serve in the front with the coffee and the greeting. And sometimes it feels like we're silos. Like like I never see the kids working, the people working with the kids. And so that's why we do the Sunday morning huddle, is we want us to be unified. The fact that, hey, we all have different gifts in the church and we serve in different areas, but we're all here for the same purpose, to know Christ and make Christ known. And it's a beautiful thing that God can do. With all the dissension in our society, man, this is what the world needs to see, that we can come together and be unified. Third thing that Nehemiah is going to teach us on how to mobilize is uh, the, you're going to see the people were committed to humility. It's going to require humility. In fact, when you look at these people, it starts out with verse 1. You see the priest, the high priest, elijah The high priest, man, he's got all sorts of expectations on him. He's got services. He's got a plan. He's got, he's got, he's supposed to be praying for people. He's got teaching uh, people. He's got to be counseling people. He's got all these things he's supposed to be doing. And he's the first one mentioned says, you know what? I'll pick up my hammer. I'm going to go to the wall. It's the servant leadership. He's saying, listen, I'll humble myself. I've got all these things I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to humble myself and be the first one to jump on the wall and say, you know what? I'm in. I'll go put some bricks together. I'll put some mortar in there. In fact, you see all sorts of of people in this chapter. You see, uh, verse 8, you see, uh, uh, excuse me, not in verse 8, you see eight different city officials mentioned, ruler of this part of the city ruler, or this part of the city, all these people are committed to being a part of the wall. Servant leadership. It's humility saying, even though I'm a city official, and I've got other things I should be doing, I'm going to commit to doing this type of work that needs to happen for the good of everybody. We already mentioned that there are uh, perfumers, there are goldsmiths, there are merchants, there are all sorts of different types of people, and you see them jumping on the wall. Man, they all, ha- they all had a reason, an excuse not to serve. I mean, the perfumer could say, well, that's not really my gift. You know, I'm into making things smell good. I don't, I don't build walls. But this is what humility is. Humility says it's not about me. Humility says whatever needs to be done, I'm committed to it. In fact, my favorite guy in the entire chapter, verse 14, Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, ruler of the half district of Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Listen, the Dungate is just what it sounds like. That's the south part of the city. That's where all the refuse goes. That's where the the sewage gets dumped. I mean, it's it's, it's not the place you want to be, right? And here's Malchijah, who's one of the city leaders. He's probably a guy with uh, a master's degree on the wall. He's probably got people that work underneath him. He's probably an important guy, and he volunteered. Said, you know what? I got the dung gate. Let's get after this. Understood this idea of humility. If it's not about me, I'm going to submit myself to the common goal, whatever needs to be done. Set aside your preferences for the good of all. Unfortunately, not everybody gets this, not everybody practices humility. Verse 5. Now we read uh, about the nobles of Tekoa. It says that next to them, the Tekoites repaired. These are people from about 10 miles away from uh, the city. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. This is a group of people who said, you know what? We're too important of a family. You know, we've been here for such a long time. You know, we don't have to, you know, we're too important. We're, we're, we're too wealthy. It's kind of, that kind of work is beneath me. I don't do that sort of thing. That's not me. Isn't, isn't that what we pay Nehemiah for? Like, isn't that why we're paying Nehemiah? So, so he'll go and rebuild the wall. But you can picture these guys. They would not stoop to serve. These were probably the same people that had the greatest criticism of Nehemiah as Nehemiah is trying to lead the people. They were probably the ones saying, oh, look what he's doing there. He's using the wrong kind of bricks. Ah, oh, look at him. He should have been using that kind of mortar. Man, maybe, maybe it wasn't even that selfishness. Maybe these guys just had all sorts of excuses. Oh, sorry, Nehemiah, I can't jump on the wall because my son has a soccer game, and, uh, you know, I can't participate in that because of this. Sorry, sorry G-N-M- Nehemiah, I just, uh, you know, uh, I can't do it. You know what's interesting about these nobles of Tekoa? Is Nehemiah wrote about them in his journal and said they would not stoop to join the mission. And their names are recorded in Scripture for all eternity as being the people who would not humble themselves and would not participate in the mission. Listen, what kind of person would Nehemiah write about you? If you're in Nehemiah's journal, what's he writing about you? Are you one of the 38 names who jumped in and said, whatever needs to be done, I'm in? Or are you like the nobles at Ticoa one more one more thing that i think takes us a little further i think the difference between the nobles and those who are mentioned of doing the work probably comes down to this idea it requires ownership and not just participation it requires ownership and not just participation maybe ownership is a better word than humility the nobles refused to take ownership when everybody else did. Let me, let me tell you what I mean when I say ownership. Years ago, my wife and I, uh, when we were young, young married, we're still young, but we were younger and married, uh, we were in an established church. And we're looking at this church, and there's some, uh, some folks with some older older people in the church, you know, and, and kind of one of those churches. And, and we're looking and saying, hey, uh, you know, we'd love to do, like, th- some younger families our age. We'd love to get some other people our age. And and so we said, hey, we started complaining about it. There's no other people our age. There's nothing for us to do. We need to be in a group. We need to do this or that. And uh, and just started complaining about it. Pastor, you need to do this. You know, elders, you need to figure this out. And then one day we decided, you know, let's get serious about ministry. Like, let's get serious about the mission that God has called us to. And I realized there's a difference between participation and ownership. Because anybody can participate. And when you participate, it's easy for you to, to find the flaws, to say, this is what's not being done, this is what we need, this is what and this is what makes me feel. And then you complain about it and expect somebody else to fix it. You know what an owner does? Owner doesn't have that luxury. An owner says if there's a problem, what needs to be done? Jumping in to fix it. My wife and I came to that season of life that we said, you know what, let's take this seriously. So instead of waiting for the pastor to figure out how to start this young marriage group that we wanted, guess what we did. We started a young marriage group. Pastor says, hey, I've got this great curriculum. It's from 1970 about young families. And we're like, oh, what are we supposed to do with this? All right, we've got something. We've got a curriculum. And we started a young marriage group because we felt the church needed it. We felt for the church to grow uh, and be younger and do these different things that we needed to do that. Ownership in the wall meant that the perfumer said, you know what, it's not my job, but I'm going to get the wall done. I'm going to get my portion. Ownership in the wall meant, you know, I'm not going to complain about the wall not being built. I'm not going to say, hey, Nehemiah, you need to do something. Hey, elders, you need to do something. I'm going to say, you know what, I'm engaged. I'll take my piece of the wall. I'll take ownership in it. Whatever needs to be done. Yeah, I'm convinced here at Restoration Church. That's who we're looking for. We're looking for owners. In fact, there are churches who have changed their uh, membership term. Where no longer are you a member of a church; now you're an owner. Wanting you to give the idea that you are a part of the solution. That God has placed you here, and we're inviting you not just to participate at Restoration Church, but to be an owner to be involved in, in in addressing what's wrong and to fixing what's wrong, to making it right. Listen, we, as, as excited as I am about Restoration Church, I know there's still holes. I know there's areas we're not excelling in. And so do you. So let's be a part of doing it together. Listen, I'll tell you, Jacob and I, man, we sit every week. As the church grows, one of the things that we've had to do is transition from, from doing a lot of the work ourselves to how do we equip people for the work of the ministry, which is actually what an elder and a pastor is supposed to do. Train and equip people for the work of the ministry. And listen, Jake has done a phenomenal job in trying to deal with this and trying to help people understand their role in ministry. Listen, Jake and I, our elders are doing all we can. This is where I'm going to invite you, not just to participate here at Restoration Church, but be an owner. Be willing to be a part of the solution, to make us stronger, to help us build a wall, to help us accomplish the mission that God has given us, not just to make a dent in our city, but to make a difference. Nehemiah chapter 3 shows us a group of people unified. Committed to a common goal that God used to accomplish something beautiful. Listen, the application for us today is I'm just going to ask you to join us. Ask you to join us at Restoration Church. If you are new here, listen, the invitation for you is there. We'd love to invite you in to be a part of what God is doing right here at Restoration Church. It is something beautiful, it is something exciting. Listen, if you are, you've been a part of the church for a season, let me ask you this. Are you a participant or are you a owner? Jake and I, we'd love to talk with you about what it looks like for you to be an owner. To help us ensure that the walls are built. To help us accomplish what needs to be so God can use us powerfully, change our city.